we happened to pre-sell it right before July 4th, which is like, you know, the biggest holiday for our customer. She travels everywhere and she's celebrating. And so she wasn't going to get any of her July 4th product. And then it all hit at once. Our fulfillment center was having labor issues at the time, which was a big trend that was going on. So they weren't able to receive all the product. We had returns piling in. They weren't able to even look at a return package. And so we weren't able to refund our customers in a timely manner. So we had these customers that weren't getting refunded. We had customers that weren't getting product that they needed. And it was one of those just moments where we thought the world was collapsing. Welcome to the Glam and Grow podcast. I'm your host, Takara Suet, head of partnerships at Wavebreak. On this show, we talk with leaders of beauty, fashion, and lifestyle brands. We dive into their stories, lessons learned, and perspectives on how the industry is ever evolving. Subscribe and join us each week as we glam and grow. This episode is brought to you by Wavebreak. Most brands don't email right and it costs them. With ad costs getting more and more expensive, a world-class email and SMS program is essential. This is why Wavebreak exists. We're the premier email and SMS marketing agency that helps brands take their retention programs to the next level. If you want to learn more about partnering with us and how we can help, schedule a call with me today at wavebreak.co slash call. Joining me today on Glam and Grow is Jocelyn Gellit, co-founder and CEO of Tucker Nuck. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's my first podcast. I know. I am so honored to be your first podcast. I'm going to take it pretty easy on you, um, but there's a lot to to talk about, and I'm so interested to hear your story and and how you founded Tucker Nuck. So take me back to the beginning. Um, you know your career prior to to founding the brand, and then you know was this something you always intended on doing, or or what did that look like? Um, okay, the beginning. Well, prior to the brand, I guess. Starting from a really young age, I was always extremely entrepreneurial. Both my parents were entrepreneurs, um, and so they raised my siblings and I to um, just look at the world from a different perspective. We were always trying to start new businesses, everything you could imagine from I had a flip-flop company where I would paint flip-flops and sell them to boutiques, or um, we had the we had kids' clubs, um, and my sister who is now my co-founder of Tucker Nuck, um, was one of my early co-founders of all these businesses. And so it really came from this entrepreneurial spirit that we were raised with from day one and this ability to not be scared to take risk. I graduated from college in 2003 and went straight into investment banking. Um, so I was at Morgan Stanley in New York City, and I was in the real estate group there. And it was there that I had a true crash course postgrad education in business. And it was the hardest, I think, two years of my life in terms of the amount of work that we had to do. I didn't get a weekend or a vacation for two years straight um, and was working till 6 a.m. almost every day. It was a grind, but it was very fulfilling because we were doing really interesting, cool things. And most importantly, I learned how to analyze a company how to see um, what companies were successful, what companies weren't, how to look at management teams and understand profitability and kind of um, those big macroeconomic drivers that make a company successful or not, how to finance a company to scale, all those things that at the end of the day, um, I didn't realize would be so key to Tucker Nuck's success. 
And so I did two years there and then I switched over and decided to go on to the investing side. So I worked for a private equity fund for years later in New York and then Hong Kong. And I love traveling around and analyzing businesses um, and deciding whether or not to invest in them and listening to their stories and how they thought that they would be able to grow with these investments or not. And I quickly realized, though, after years of doing it, that I loved hearing the stories that they were telling and the opportunities that they saw in the market and how excited they were about growing these ideas and these visions that they had. And I realized that um, I really wanted to be growing and building things. And that was kind of what was something that drove me and really fulfilled me. I think you can love selling something or you can love building something. Um, and for me, it was really about building building things. And I wanted to be that person that was um, building a brand and and putting something out there for the world that was um, positive. And, and just for me, was the really fun part of being in business. So I moved back from Hong Kong and teamed up with my sister um, and her best friend from Penn. And the two of them had been um, in retail for about two years at that point. They'd pretty recently graduated from college and they worked for um, this brand in Georgetown called Scout. Um, I don't know if you know Scout bags, but they're these yes, really I have heard of that. beautiful, wipeable, um, colorful bags that are usually for storage and hauling things. And so it was there that they kind of learned a little bit about retail. And the three of us basically came together and just kept having this desire to create an online company that brought together all these amazing brands that we would find when we'd go to these vacation destinations and go to these boutiques that we couldn't find online. We really were these kind of busy women that didn't want to dress in the same product from head to toe and wanted to be able to go online and discover all these little stories from these brands that we would find in boutiques and put them kind of on a one-stop shop and do it in a way where we felt an authentic connection to the brand. And so for us, we didn't know how to open up a store. We didn't know what um, what it was like to build this business in the in the real world, but we knew that we wanted to provide this amazing service to this customer because we were the customer where they could discover all these brands in one place and really truly be inspired by living this kind of fun-filled world. And we were really inspired at the time by like Martha Stewart magazines and, and the content that she would put out there advising us on how to live and just getting lost in these beautiful pictures, whether we were going to milk a cow and make cottage cheese from scratch, probably not. <laughs> really, we're addicted to this inspirational content and the pictures that were in there and the advice that she was giving. And we really wanted to take that type of, of a world and, and be able to bring that to our customer and, and give her the tools to feel confident and to and to live that that life um, and to discover all these new brands in one place. Okay, so many things to, to digest there. But I want to go back to talking about your time in investment banking because you made such an investment in your education and then your career. I'm curious if you always thought like that was just a really great avenue for you to build the foundation to build the business or you went into it with the intention of being an investment banker for life, which I guess, good luck, <laughs> very challenging thing to yeah. do. But, and then living in Hong Kong and all of these different things that you experienced, did that really build the foundation for you to be able to run 
the business that you have today. And then what were some of the the biggest learnings that you had being in global markets and and being in that that world that you have taken to the brand? I think okay, those are a lot of questions there. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I said easy. I'm trying to make- <laughs> No, I think I am not one of those people. I, I live my life by saying, okay, worst case scenario, I can make a change. You know, I think and it allows that. to to take more risk and to try lots of new things. Um, as long as you're always looking at the downside scenario and the downside scenario is not too extreme. And so with investment banking, I knew from a young age, I loved business. I knew whether it was being an entrepreneur or just business in general. I was one of those kids. I loved my Barbies, but when I was playing Barbies, they were always businesswomen, you know, talking about growing these, these, you know, big industries. And I loved my idol back then was Angela Bauer from Who's the Boss. And people would say, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I'd say, I want to be the CEO of a top advertising agency. Um, So I just, from a young age, that's what I loved. I knew that's what I wanted to do. And so when I went into investment banking, I thought that that was what I wanted to do. Um, And very quickly, I always tell people to this day that um, are trying to decide what their long-term career paths are. First of all, you should never know what you want to do in your 20s. I mean, your 20s are about trying lots of different things, figuring out what you're passionate about. Um, And one of the things that I realized when I was there was look at the people that are 10, 20 years ahead of you. Do you want to be those people? In <laughs> they were probably so tired. <laughs> like, were I am out. <laughs> yeah. And I had amazing bosses and, but I just, and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's personal for everyone, but I just looked around and that's not what I wanted to be 10, 20 years from now. And it didn't mean that I immediately wanted to change my path in my career at that moment. But that was when I realized I was there um, in that role to learn as much as possible. And I think that's what different stages of your career are about. And especially in your 20s, it shouldn't be about you trying to focus on how quickly you can, you know, get new title changes and things like that, but really focus on more so are you learning, are you developing as a business person? Um, are you feeling fulfilled? Are you bored? Are you stagnant? Um, if that's the case, then you move on. But I think at that point I was like, okay, I'm going to at least get through the next two years because it was a tier analyst program, learning as much as I can. Um, and that's what I did. I learned so much and so much of it is relevant to everything that we do today in this industry. So, yeah, that's incredible. So let's fast forward to really starting to, to build the brand and really the boutique online. What did it look like in the beginning? And did you did the three of you have clearly defined roles or were you sort of just winging it as you went and then were you working at the time or you just, you guys went all in from the get go? We went all in. We left our our jobs um, and we, um, we launched it in DC initially. And we did that because we were totally bootstrapped. We launched it above my parents' garage and Maddie in September had a little bit of that retail experience and I had all the business experience. So um, early on that kind of at least differentiated our paths a bit or our roles a bit. I was the one that was building out the business models. Um, I think at the time there were a lot of businesses starting, new businesses starting, and I just kept being focused, which I think at the time was very rare. But does this business have a bottom line? Can it be profitable? Is this a truly sustainable business model? Um, we never launched thinking we're just going to go out, have an idea, raise a lot of money and um, figure it out. From day one, we built a business around profitability um, and and have done so ever since. Um, and I think it has always given us 
a lot of freedom to make the decisions that we think are best for the customer um, and to take the risks that we think are best for the brand because we aren't dependent on board members and people like that. So early on, we launched above the garage. The one thing that will always define the three of us is scrappy. We are scrappy as hell. I mean, at the time, no one wanted to be on an e-commerce site. And we wanted to aggregate all these brands and big brands and small brands and have this whole discovery platform. And we were going to create the biggest, most beautiful content. And we actually were asked to join an incubator program, which were very popular back then in Mountain View, California. And this one was called 500 Startups. And so we packed up our bags and we said, okay. And so we all moved to Mountain View, California. We shared beds and got a tiny temporary apartment. And we were, we stood out like a sore thumb out there. We were in white white stripes and we were, you know, there were only women practically in the incubator program. And we didn't know anything about technology at the time. We just knew that we wanted to start this, um, this retail brand and we wanted to start it online. And so they said, okay, you need to give up all this equity and spend all your money on a um, on a CTO. That will be the most important part of your business. And we kept saying, I don't know, I don't know. And at the time, there was this new thing called Shopify that was launching. <laughs> and we researched a lot and we were like, okay, I think we're going to test this thing called Shopify. And they were like, no, you need a CTO. You need a custom platform. And That's we were crazy. Like, 500 bucks, we could do this Shopify thing. Um, And so we launched the business on Shopify and we took our money and we said, we're going to invest in a really awesome camera. And from day one for us, we really were focused on investing in beautiful content that inspired our customer and told a story and brought all of the product and the brands together um, in something that felt alive and authentic um, and really just told the story and people wanted to jump into that story that we were telling um, and be inspired by it. And so to this day, we still don't have a CTO. I don't know whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but um... Uh, I don't know of many (laughs) brands that have a CTO offhand. I don't hear anybody talk about that. So that was, it seems like you guys made a lot of really, really smart decisions early on and things could have gone in a very different direction. Yeah, we were lucky. I think we went with our gut. That's most of what we've done. So I love that. I love that. That's crazy. I'm, uh, so I'm glad you guys. It sounds like you guys ran for the hills. <laughs> um, literally, that's crazy. So going back to actually the aesthetic and the lifestyle of the brand that you mentioned. For anyone listening who's not familiar with Tucker Nuck, talk to me about the the DNA and and the brand voice of the brand and and what exactly you guys had envisioned. So we. Now, looking back, I realized, you know, I think there is this big movement right now for kind of next gen brands. So this next generation of brands that maybe represented a certain type of lifestyle from, you know, from brands that were 30, 40 years prior, like your Banana Republics and J. Cruz and Land's Ends and all those. Um, And kind of, I, I do think that there is this great opportunity that we have naturally fallen into where this next generation is looking for brands to connect with that they find authentic authenticity with um, that feel a little newer and fresher than some of those successful ones from before. But at the time, we really just wanted this brand to be fun. I think I was in New York City wearing head to toe to Hardy suits. 
or yeah. black. And, yeah. Yeah. I know black. the second you move somewhere warm or, or start vacationing, you really embrace the color. Exactly. As I'm in black today. (laughs) And all my friends were in fashion and there seemed to not be this in between. It was that they were either really fashionable and in super high stilettos and amazingly expensive, beautiful clothes, or there was me in, um, you know, your black suit from head to toe. And I always felt like this really unstylish kid sister trying to tag along. And we really just felt like there was this in between. There was this this world that we wanted to create that wasn't intimidating. It was aspirational, but attainable. And um, you felt like once you got to Tucker Nuck, it was inspiration for a fun-filled life where you didn't take yourself too seriously. And we, you know, could inspire you to celebrate with friends and family and have a curious mind and travel and be a world where you could feel confident. Um, and we could help provide you with great styling tips and just be this one-stop shop that was a true life hack for our customer. And our customer, she's she's busy, she's smart, she has a lot on her plate always, and she really values that we kind of curate a lot of these amazing brands and a lot of this great product out there for her needs and for her lifestyle. And we do it at, at a, a large range of price points as well. Yeah, there's a lot of variation in the price point. And, and from the curation standpoint, I mean, the website is phenomenal. So easy to navigate. I definitely want to touch on that. But going back to the beginning, I'm curious if the the vision for this life to- lifestyle has changed. And then did you launch with your own brand or did you launch as a boutique that just was curating we, certain yeah, styles? We launched as a boutique. The vision for the brand has changed. It's always evolving. We are the customer. And so as we evolve, we the brand evolves with us. Um, when we first launched our our happy place, we grew up spending summers in Nantucket, still do. Um, and we wanted to, I think, connect with a place that was happy and where we felt carefree. Um, and so a lot of the inspiration came from this place that was not a specific location. It wasn't about it being in Nantucket, but it was about that feeling that you get when you're on Nantucket, which is just you're up for anything, there's adventure, and you're celebrating with friends and family, and you're carefree, and and it's just effortless. So as a result, the name Tuckernuck um, is actually an island that is off of Nantucket. It's in between Nantucket and um, Cape Cod, or Martha's Vineyard area. And for us, we've chose that name. It's not once again about it being an island in New England, but it's about discovery. And we wanted the website to always be about discovery. We always have this phrase that's been our lens that we've used in everything we do since the beginning of time. And so, as you said, the brand from an aesthetic perspective might evolve, but the mission has always been the same, which is really kind of seize the dia, which is kind of live life. And the dia stands for discovery inspiration and authenticity. And so everything we do, those are the three words we always use. And Tuckernuck was about that. It's this tiny little island. It doesn't have electricity. No one knows about it really. And you kind of stumble upon it. And it's really about um, discovery, discovery. So that's so cool. Um, So let's talk about curating this aesthetic and the style. The style is phenomenal. And I'm curious, has your style just even on a personal level evolved with with having the brand and when you've seen like maybe what's worked and what hasn't worked? And then talking about like the website, I'm sure it's been massively improved since inception, or maybe you had it 
right from the get-go, but it's super easy to navigate. And there really is this foolproof way for you to recommend styles and trends and things of that nature. So I'm curious how often you're updating that, how you're staying on top of trends and and essentially why your customer shops with you. So early on to your um, question about were we just a boutique? It, when we first launched, we um, we just aggregated brands. And I think we launched and there were maybe four brands that actually finally said yes to us. So this big boutique launched. And I think one was maybe a Pareo brand that we turned into ready to wear styles. I mean, it was, we had a skinny jeans brand for college students in bright colors. I mean, it was, it was real random hodgepodge. Um, (laughs) We still um, made it work. And, and eventually with the content, we built up the most phenomenal brands now. I mean, we have over three. I know your list is insane. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and I think to your point, we our, our design has, has evolved a lot too, because this has become our job and we always have had the same type of aesthetic and style, which is we, we all dress um, in a way where we want to feel confident. We want to feel stylish. We want to feel polished, but we want it to feel effortless as well. Um, and very attainable, not intimidating, and just fun. And we want to make sure that whatever we're wearing, we can do whatever we want in um, in that outfit and still feel confident. We don't want it to ever hold us back from a fun night or a fun adventure or something that um, that that could come our way. And so we have always had all these different brands, but as it became our job, it became our job for the customer to always be able to be a little bit of step ahead of her. We always say um, for our customer, we want to be where she wants to be, not where she is, but where she wants to be. And so that's a mindset where she doesn't even know that she wants to discover some of these brands. And we always have to be one step ahead of her, educating her um, on them and where she wants to be wearing this product and why. And so we've become true experts and you have to study it nonstop. And we're just trying to find these new brands on every channel imaginable. I was going to say, do you have like a methodology of how? No, it's anywhere. I mean, I will stop someone in the street and say, I love your jacket. (laughs) I love that. Of like pulling the tag back and then immediately writing it down. And that suddenly becomes a new brand we've discovered. Um, So we, we hunt, that is our job. We hunt, um, we try them on, we test it. Um, and, and that's the fun part. And we, um, are constantly looking for inspiration in everything from old movies that we watch to, you know, influencers that we follow to, to people that, you know, are to politicians, anyone, anyone out there can inspire us. We, we often are much more inspired by, um, our friends and and people in real life than people that are true fashionistas actually. And so for us, it has become just, it's our, it's something that we love and that we're passionate about, but it's also truly our job. And it's funny as we bring on more people on our team that have been experts at other companies like Bloomingdale's and these other larger ones, they come on and they just say, we are blown away by how you've built this business um, on so much data. And that you girls just analyze data out the wazoo for your decisions. And we're so, we think that's so funny because none of us were really well-trained in this industry. And so we just have always done everything based on our gut instincts. And if there's a problem we see, we try to figure out solutions. If there's, 
you know, questions we have. We try to see if there's historic information on how to, you know, make that decision better. But what we've realized over time is we actually have become total data nerds and we build so much of this business around um, analyzing what the customers purchase, what she's returning, analyzing reports from every aspect under the sun, especially when it comes to um, all of the digital marketing um, and things like that. And so we've kind of become this really data hungry business as a result too. So that's a big driver for um, what we what we buy and and how we distribute it. Yeah, that's really interesting to hear that they're coming from, you know, a Bloomingdale's, let's say, and they're that they're not analyzing the data. Is there certain data points or or sets that you look for um, in making some of those key decisions? I think, well, at the moment, it's more just trying to analyze really the different trends around what people are purchasing and why in the consumer behavior. I know what you were talking about before. And we we sell to so much of the country. You can see across the entire nation what the consumer behavior is like at any given time. And I think that honestly in, in COVID also was the most interesting to watch. We were shipping product to all different parts of the country and it was very different product depending on where the customers were located. Also different marketing messages that you had to put out there because everyone was having such different experiences and different perspectives. And so a lot of that data we've started to dig into also is um, is ge- geographic and geo-targeting and where she's buying and what and why and at what times of the year and um, and what messaging is most receptive to various markets. So that's been something that I think is very interesting to understand. And, you know, you look at how retail is very seasonal, but it's really trying to understand when to bring in this product at various times, overlaying that with all the different geographies and consumer behavior in the country. Yeah, I think you bring up, actually, that was a perfect segue into my next question. You mentioned um, geographical points and then, um, you know, different times of the year communicating different markets. How do you combat seasonality, being that a lot of the brand is, you know, definitely more uh, conducive to warmer climates, I would say, um, although probably a lot of your customers have a lot of resort wear, or they, they go on vacation frequently. Um, so how do you combat that? Well, we actually are a very seasonal we are season heavy. It's probably because you're starting to see, if you're looking at the site right now, we're very um, resort going into spring. Feb marks when all the spring product comes in. Um, And it used to be that that product would sit Jan, Feb, March. um, Because when we first launched, we were more Northeast heavy just because of where we were all located. And then we started to see, hey, there's huge buying that's going on in January, February, March for some of this warmer weather product. And it's because Um, We were growing a lot in the South and the South, you know, their spring starts earlier, their summer breaks start earlier, everything is earlier for them. So they would start to purchase all that warm weather product earlier on. And so that's why, especially now you start to see it. We also started to realize in the North, people still wanted to buy things and it wasn't always um, warm weather driven. So there is this constant balance between trying to get have buy now, wear now product right. for northern markets at this time of year, um, and then have warm weather product for southern markets um, as they're transitioning out of winter earlier. But that must be so challenging without having like too much inventory or anything on hand. That must be. It's very challenging. And at times you feel just like you don't even know what to market or who to market or what to shoot or where to shoot. And 
to your point, when you asked, do we have a Tucker Nuck label or when did we launch it? Um, that was some of the reason behind launching the Tucker Nuck brand was we felt like there was a lot of white space in the market around product that was more buy now, wear now, and that was really wearable. Um, and that would be at the at certain seasons that we couldn't find it or source it um, at sharp price points. And so it became important to us to start to try to make product um, during those shoulder seasons um, and product that wasn't just about event dressing or just about resort. Um, but that was really more for those everyday moments that sometimes are the hardest to dress for and that our customer comes to us, um, you know, little things like those easy, you know, now that it's work casual, what do you wear to work or for drop off regular things like drop off your kids at school in something besides your leggings or, you know, what to wear on the weekends, your kids soccer games or your date night looks, all those type of things, I think are what our customer comes to us for and what we were having problems sourcing and putting together um, out there in the market at sharper price points and especially at those buy now, wear now parts of the year. So that's really when we started to launch our own line. It wasn't margin driven. It was really about there was a need for this type of product for our girl out there. Um, and it wasn't about trying to compete with all these amazing I was gonna ask that brands too. that we discovered. No, it was really complimentary. It was to help so that we were a place that our customer would come to all times of the year and purchase, you know, and learn about these Discover brands, but also have something to um to buy for just, you know, her daily life at those shoulder seasons. Yeah, I love the Tucker Nuck brand. Like, I think it's incredible. So I was curious, actually, if you found you ever, I don't know if compete is the right word, but definitely, you know, have a little bit of, I guess it would be a complimentary style with a lot of the other brands that you carry. Um, when I did you definitely launch? make it complimentary? It's, but it's definitely, it's tricky, probably every, you know, all the brands cross over a little bit right. um, here or there, but, you know, we always go back to, there is such an intention in what we make or what we buy, what we put out for the customer. And before we, with every season, we literally by month, by week map out what is our customer doing every single day? Where is she going? Is oh, this that's so interesting? Is it do you do that by market or just like as a general consensus? We actually do it as a general consensus and we kind of think about it by market, but you're right, we should be doing it more and more by market. Um, well, it's funny, like I'm from New York and I mo- I moved to Florida to 2 years ago and like my the entire way I dress minus today <laughs> has like completely changed. I used to same thing, live in black, like my wardrobe it's like night and day. Now almost everything I wear is like some variation of pink, which is like crazy. Um but yeah, I I feel like it would be it's so crazy how people evolve and then post covid so many people have moved there's such like a shift uh, so probably in the data as well that yeah, people I feel like you have to markets are New York and um and Texas right now. And you oh, couldn't have different market in terms of I mean they're both sophisticated very stylish markets but one is much more colorful and you know event driven the others more more just not sophisticated but more um li- less risk taking and more you know less colorful but to right. have those be your two top markets it is this con but with our markets we always have the same type of girl and that's what we go back to it's you know it gets maybe the colors change or things like that but our girl is always 
when we poll her every single time, she is busy. She's doing stuff. She's smart. A lot of times she's working or she's a a really busy mom. So she's out there doing a lot of things. And she is just looking for a place that can sum up what the product is that she needs to go out and tackle her life and feel confident and stylish. And that is constant. We go back to, you know, we sit there and we go, where are we going this week? What are we doing? What do we need to wear? And then we find product for those needs or we, um, or we make it if we can't find it out there. That's so interesting. How long after you started the, the boutique, did you launch the, your own brand? So we launched our own brand four years ago and we're nine years old, I think. So about five, five years after we finally launched our own and it's a totally different business model. It's crazy to be, you know, producing your own product versus aggregating it. And I think in COVID, I mean, we have seen every single macroeconomic issue that you have seen out there in the last few years, we have felt and we've navigated and we've leaned into in many times at many times, but it's been so interesting. I always, you know, coming from the business world in New York City, I always thought fashion was kind of this, you know, you'd poo-poo it a little bit. And I realized it is the most complicated, most interesting, most challenging business model out there. It truly encompasses every single part of business. It's not just a marketing company. It's not just about making a single product. It is about you know, dealing with supply chain issues, logistics, technology, you know, digital um, brand integrity, as well as just picking, you know, the right product. I mean, that's just one tiny part of it. It is so all encompassing. And so as a result, you're wearing a thousand different hats at all times. And I'm sure it's really, really interesting. Um, I'm, I'm really fulfilling and has been a roller coaster of a ride the last few years. <laughs> I bet to say the least. Have you found you've almost split the business into almost two separate entities of like, you know, one team runs like all the other brands and like the e-commerce side and then one team runs, you know, sort of the manufacturing and and that, so to speak. Yep, we do that. So we we have two different teams. We have our third-party buying team and then we have our um, design team. And at the end of the day, myself, September, and my sister, um, the three of us, Maddie, the founders, we still are involved in all the brands we bring on, all the product that we pick, and um, the product that we design. So there's still that authenticity where it's you know, very much, we are the customer. What do we need? What do we want? But um, we split them in two because they're on different calendar cycles. They require so much work and they require different types of expertise. But we make sure at all times that we are kind of seeing both. Um, one of the reasons is, to your point, we don't want anything to feel competitive. We want to make sure that we're not designing things that look too similar to brands that we are aggregating or bringing on or trying to celebrate or um, you know, be this great platform and marketplace for. And so for us, we do make sure that it isn't just a solid Chinese wall, that we do try to make that sure sense. that we're constantly curating the assortment so that there's not a lot of redundancy and things like that. If you listen to this podcast, you likely know that Shopify is the go-to e-commerce platform, helping millions sell to billions around the world. But did you know that Shopify can do the same thing in person at your retail store? Give your point of sale system a serious upgrade with Shopify. 
Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug and play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. With Shopify POS, you can take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point of sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go Mobile device for a battle-tested solution. The best part? With Shopify POS, effortlessly unite your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash glam, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash glam to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash G-L-A-M. Now back to this episode. You mentioned, you know, throughout this conversation that you are the customer. So I'm curious, is your mentality like you, the three of you try on every single piece and it has to be something you would wear, or are you a little bit open to like trends that maybe aren't exactly what you would wear, but still like having the customer in mind? Like, is there a way you approach that? So first when we started, we came up with their kind of five or six different girls out there and we defined each one of them um, and their style. And we use that as a lens, but what we realized we lucked, we some of, I think why we are successful is the three of us are very complimentary and we have complimentary taste as well. And so we realized early on, if one of the three of us or all three of us, if all three of us liked the product, then it would be an absolute bestseller. Um, if one of us liked it, it would still be successful. And it represented, you know, some of our girls, but for us, it really is about we're not buying into anything we don't believe in or we don't think one of our girls um, would believe in. There are trends that we think are fantastic that we all love and embrace and um, dive into. And then there are ones where we're like, okay, whoa, whoa, this might be a little too much for us. And we don't think we can translate it to our customer at all. Um, And so those are things where we're constantly going back and forth and debating it. But at the end of the day, one of the three of us um, would wear it or buy it um, at any point. And we always say that when we're doing the buying, we say, okay, I love that, but where would I wear it? And would I actually buy it? And if, and if we can't find a place to wear it or, or if we wouldn't buy it, then we don't end up bringing it on to the site. You mentioned all the complications in, in working in fashion and, and retail. I'm curious, what has been the biggest pain point as you've scaled and the most challenging part perhaps of building the business? Well, early on, it was just having no money. So, and those were pre-COVID days. That was just more trying to stay alive. Um, we built the business on a friends and family raise very early on, but we we haven't, we've never raised venture capital or um, anything like that. So as a result, though, we've always been very focused on every dollar we put out. What is that return on investment? I think as a result, it's made it so that we are so in touch with the customer and what she wants. And we're constantly evolving and listening to her and asking her questions. And um, and I think that's also what drove a lot of the desire to analyze data is because you know, you're kind of like 
the wizard behind the curtain in the Emerald City, where sometimes we're like, hey, is this mic gone? Is anyone out there? And so <laughs> it's hard to figure out, you know, whether you're what the whether your customer is enjoying the product or not, or what she's feeling without really trying to understand trends and and um and looking at the data. And so it forced us to do that. And then it it forced us to do that because we didn't have the luxury of spending a ton of money on digital and not having that customer come back over and over again and not be a high quality customer. Um, and so, you know, we really were focused on a high return on ad spend with every customer that we acquired from day one. And so um, the challenges early on were just, we didn't have any money and we were very bootstrapped and we were trying to figure out how to grow it and finance it in a way that, you know, I think wasn't as common when people were out there raising a lot of money back then. More recently, though, um, I feel like we've had every big issue you could imagine. Um, supply chain issues were big for us for a while, constant delays on um, on shipments arriving nonstop. And I think a major one was um, early on, we realized, oh, she liked the product. Let's get it to her as quickly as possible. So we went into this pre-sale model because um, we thought, oh, she would want to see what was coming down the pike. So we'd photograph it and put it up and put it for sale. And and then all of a sudden, we these supply, we'd pre-sold all this product. All these supply chain issues hit. So the product was very oh delayed. Gosh. We happened to pre-sell it right before July 4th, which is like you know, the biggest holiday for our customer. She travels everywhere and she's celebrating. And so she wasn't going to get any of her July 4th product. And then it all hit at once. Our fulfillment center was having labor issues at the time, which was a big trend that was going on. So they weren't able to receive all the product. We had returns piling in. They weren't able to even look at a return package. And so we weren't able to refund our customers at the time in a timely manner. So we had these customers that weren't getting refunded. We had customers that weren't getting product that they needed. And it was one of those just moments where we thought the world was collapsing. I mean, every, you know, the customers have so many channels at this point to really voice their concerns. And so the social channels were blowing up, the customer experience channels were blowing up. um, And we just felt like, you know, the worst thing in the world since day one is to disappoint that customer. You know, we really started the business on providing this amazing service to her and being this one-stop shop for her and this life hack that could give her kind of tips and advice and inspiration and make her feel confident. And just, we were letting her down in all aspects and even down to, you know, being called a fraud because, you know, they were worried that they weren't getting refunded in time. And it was just this perfect storm of labor economic labor issues and supply chain issues. And it all kind of hit at once. And it really forced us to stop, step back and think, okay, we're trying to grow too fast at the expense of the customer's experience. And it was a really eye-opening for us. We stepped back. We um, we moved fulfillment centers. We made sure we'd never put anything on pre-sale again. It forced us to get on real calendars for the way we developed our product. And it really made us constantly think, go back to this mentality of customer first and um, how can we give her the best experience possible. When we first launched Tucker Knock, you were talking about aggregating these brands and we actually didn't even have any money back then to invest in inventory. So they were all on drop ship. And so um, that early on, those brands that took a chance on us, it was all drop ship models. And it was the worst experience for the customer. Once again, 
the inventory was selling out with these other brands. So we'd have to cancel their order or they would receive 10 different packages from 10 different brands from all different places. And we really, at that point also realized customer first was always so key to our brand and their experience. And so taking that risk on purchasing inventory up front was important. And obviously, you know, when all of the world was falling apart at that point, when um, when all the supply chain and labor issues were happening, we went back to that customer first mentality. And even if it meant growing a little bit slower at the time. Yeah. What an incredibly stressful time. Oh my gosh. But, um, and yeah, just the I would say like the emotionality of having that connection with a customer. I'm sure you've built a lot of trust with the majority of your customers. So how did you go about communicating with them during that time? Were you just transparent and honest about what was going on? Did you, you know, email them back personally or or how did you, how did you navigate that? We have always, I mean, our, we have always taken everything so personally. It's funny in those early days, I remember we'd first gotten the Canada Goose um, brand to be able to be on our site. And there was um, this one issue with our fulfillment center not being able to ship out this woman, these women's jackets in time for Christmas. And September, my co-founder was so upset. She got in the car and she drove from DC to, I think it was New Jersey. Oh my gosh. I love that. This woman, so her, um, her children could get their Canada Goose jackets for Christmas. And I mean, those are the stories that we do all the time because oh it my is gosh. So um, for us, I mean, I still am on the chats every single year with all the customers and going above and beyond. Um, we, we will do anything for them. And so at that time, it felt like the worst thing in the world was to let all these customers down. Um, and we learned at that point that it was really important to be transparent and to be honest um, and to say that we made a mistake and that um and that we knew we were making a mistake and that we would we were making strides to try to make it better and our customer is understanding too she i think she knows that we are a lot of times more of a scrappy homemade built brand i mean she expects us to provide a level of service that you know is expected in the industry at this point and that's what we strive for but historically when we have made those mistakes in the past as long as we we're clear with what our intention was and we're apologetic and we remedy them as quickly as possible. Um, she's very understanding and she's very patient. And so we've been very grateful. We have great customers as a result of that. Um, but it makes us constant problem solvers as well. And so I think um, that's where we look at those things. We have PTSD from those experiences all the time. And it always is making us a better brand and a better business person as a result. I mean, right now we're looking at, um, we've seen a a spike in return rates. Um, that was my next question. Perfect. Tell me how you're, once again, another uh, macroeconomic issue. Yeah. Tell me how you're approaching that. Um, and so we've seen a spike in return rates. Um, there was this initial movement where everyone was forced to kind of join the world of e-com and purchase online. And, and so they did. And then I think they stayed there purchasing. And we are starting to see that people are now treating their bedroom a bit more like um, like they would a changing room. So if you think about your changing room in a store, you're probably going to take in six pieces. Oh, that's and interesting. And so that's what we're realizing, I think, is kind of a trend that's going on. So our our return rate has gone up. And rather than panic about it, we're really embracing it. And we're saying that this is the way that the customer is shopping these days. And and let's build a business model around it. 
And so um, we had such PTSD from um, <laughs> your whole team with the poor PTSD. <laughs> a lot of PTSD. It's a lot. Um, but we had so much from all those returns piling up and them not even be able to open a package and figure out what was what and how to restock it that we actually have two different fulfillment centers now that we use. We are really focused on, so one of our fulfillment centers is a traditional fulfillment model, Whiplash, and they are amazing at receiving huge bulks of our inventory in and shipping it out. And then our second fulfillment center is called Optoro, and it is purely focused on returns and returns processing. And so what they do is they have software where any packages that get returned, they can immediately um, analyze it, refurbish it, and get it back in stock within 24 hours. And what that does is um, historically, you'd have those returns piling up for months, weeks, 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 and months. And, uh, so and then it goes straight into markdowns and you know sample sale and things like that. But what this does is allow us to get that inventory back in stock and um, sellable in a really, really timely way um, so that we can embrace that returns model and just make sure that that part of the business is working very efficiently and we can optimize our inventory much better that way. And then do they ship it back to the original fulfillment center? So what they do is if it's product that we don't have a lot of depth in, they will reship it out um, as a fulfiller to the customer, directly to the customer. If it's product that we are have a lot of core in, then they will repal it and ship it back to the other one. But for the most part, we've trained them so that they'll get that product back in stock and ship back out um, immediately. And it's really increased our inventory turn as a result. And it's made it so we don't have to go as deep in the product or have as high a stock to sales ratio. Yeah, that's interesting. <laughs> Has it made returns or just the business more profitable in general, just having that? Made it more profitable because... You're not um, sitting on a lot of inventory that's going to go into markdown. So that was one of the things we learned this past year was our markdown rate wasn't as high as we'd planned because we were able to get that product back out there when it was still in season and hadn't gone into markdowns quite yet. Do you think that's imperative for a brand that has so many different SKUs? Like, would you say that's a big part of the challenge? Like if, let's say it was, you know, I'm throwing out like a skincare brand that had three SKUs, like it wouldn't be as challenging as, as a boutique and, you know, oh, yeah. we have a, so many brands. We have such a complicated business model. Yeah, I mean, you I, really do. <laughs> you took on some challenge. Like we are not just aggregating. We are also, you know, making product and we're doing it for multiple verticals. I mean, we really have a complicated business model. And as a result, we have to really have so much transparency around all that inventory um, and and how and, and the name of the game really is high quality inventory that you can turn as quickly as possible. Yeah. And it and, and that's what makes it, you know, when we were looking at all these different fulfillment centers, they're great fulfillment centers, but they deal with single brand labels out there. Um, so they're really used to you know, brands that they, that have really, you know, transparent calendars and things like that. When you're dealing with 300 brands from all over the world, we have international brands, they're coming in, some are barcoded, some aren't, <laughs> different currencies on them. I mean, it's, it is challenging. And so that's why we finally realized we had to fully split it up and have one fulfillment center that was amazing at dealing with brands, with companies that aggregate lots of different brands that come in all different forms. And then um, one that just was so focused on returns that it was um, clear because it's hard for those fulfillment centers that don't know returns well 
to understand when you're getting all this rogue product from all these different brands, some with tags, some without, how to identify them. Um, that's, I think, the real complicated part of it. But that's also why we started. We started because we didn't want to shop at these huge these huge department stores that didn't feel like they were curating at all, but just were a place where you would go and you'd have to figure it out yourself and figure out how to put the outfits together yourselves and didn't feel like they had, you know, kind of a face or a soul to them. And so that's really why we started. And so that's why it's constantly our challenge is to figure out how to, you know, make this experience a good experience um, for aggregating all these brands. Because we go back to, yes, the margins are probably better for our own product lines, but that's not how we want to dress. We never want to dress in the same label from head to toe. We always want to be able as the customer to discover cool new brands and their stories and to cross merchandise all the product together. And um, and so that will always be the DNA of Tucker Knock. We will always be aggregating all of those amazing brands and hunting you know, for them all over. Yeah, that's incredible. Um, so let's touch on marketing. Um, I'm curious since you launched, you know, nine years ago. Obviously, the marketing landscape has vastly changed. That's another uh, thing. Yeah, I can't yeah. Even- so I mean, yeah, yeah. I definitely ha- we have to touch on this for sure. So I'm curious, like, what marketing channel as of late is most effective for you? And then in terms of content, you have the most gorgeous assets. How often are you shooting? Are you utilizing like a lot of content that the brands? give you? Like, what does that look like? So you keep your sanity, I I would imagine, and then have like the pulse on everything because there's just so much to shoot and interact with. There's so much. And that's all behind the scenes. We are a machine. I mean, we are, we have the most incredible team, I think in the industry (coughs) in the sense that we shoot everything. We, we never use any. Oh, wow. Wow. Ever. And I think that's also some of how when you come to our site, people say, oh, we just understand that it's it's Tucker Knock. You have this feel. And I think it's because we really do control all of the imagery that we put out there. The challenge is the amount of imagery that we create and keeping it fresh and cool and interesting and inspirational. You know, the landscape has changed and the um, the distribution channels have changed and how the content is being distributed and also just being how the customer wants to wants to consume it and be inspired by it. And so that's where we're in the shift right now where we're trying to figure out, okay, now what are the different buckets for us? It's really the the different marketing channels. Discovery um, is a really important one and that's really all of social. So that's where now she's consuming kind of the inspiration and the advice in really short snippets. That's where, you know, reels and videos suddenly are coming into play a lot. We're testing TikTok. Um, but that that channel is really less about being a major revenue driver for us, but being really about discovery and being where she is and helping advise her in um, in really easy, digestible ways and help inspire her. And then I think our marketing channel that's all about loyalty, um, which is strong. Our customers' lifetime value and frequency of purchase is is really, really, really high compared to industry standards. That loyalty is through um, our organic and email and text messaging. So those channels are really where that customer is focused, that is loyal with us, that's repeat buying multiple times, that wants to see what the new drops are, that, um, you know, people say our emails, um, they always say, it's like, you know where I'm going. It's like, you know what I'm doing. It's like you're in my head. And that's because 
our emails are so important to us. It's basically us, you know, saying, okay, these are the different ways to style for all your trips for spring break. This is where we're always thinking through what she's doing, where she's going. Um, and we really make it like this advice column for her um, in the emails. It's not just about new arrivals or taking some brand's image that they've provided us and putting it out there. It's really just this great advice column. Um, and as people have started to migrate over to social, we're trying to take that advice column and translate it into, you know, these social um, type content pieces as well. Then we have acquisition acquisition channels. So paid is massive for us. We are first and foremost, a digital brand. We don't have traditional forms of marketing like print or, you know, TV or anything like that. We kind of have been born on the web um, and that's our DNA and that's how we've acquired our customers over time. So I think it's, it's like this bridge of super digital and then super old school. So the two ways are really um, customer acquisition on page search channels and then word of mouth in person. I mean, literally, it's these moms and business people and all these people that just see the product and ask where they got it. And we like to say we're, we're one of the bigger brands that no one's ever heard about because it's your best <laughs> secret. You know, when we polled our customers, we said, oh, would you recommend this brand to other to your friends? And they said, yes, but I won't because it's my best kept secret. So, <laughs> That's good is, and bad for you, I guess. That's yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> to touch on the acquisition, you mentioned earlier how you you really are focused on um, long-term customers and, and really profitable customers. Is there any sort of strategy that you can share that is somehow you go about that? Or is it because you started with digital, you know, nine years ago and you just really have a strong... Uh, a strong strategy or is it the agency you work with? Like, what is that? I think our agency, El Toro, they have been fantastic, but um, they also, as well as Google and all these different, we're in these different special incubator programs with some, with with, um, Meta and Google and these different ad companies now just this year, because they've, because of the growth that they've seen that we're able to achieve year over year consistently. And the return on ad spend that we have. And I I really go back to that brand loyalty and that that success is because of the brand that we're putting out there and the product. It has, you know, I think there's no special secret sauce to the um to the digital part of it. I think we create great content, great product, and we shoot it in a way um, that can be successful for a customer to find us online through paid search and through Google and Facebook and things, but and retargeting. But at the end of the day, they're not going to, you know, come back over and over again and be this amazing customer if we aren't providing an incredible service for them at the right price points and um and do it in an inspirational way. You know, I think our whole thing is you have to have that brand, you have to have that authentic connection with them. You have to be giving them something that they need, being somewhere that they want to be for them. And since day one, that's, I think, been our secret sauce. And as a result, you know, we're able to acquire those customers profitably and retain them. And it's really because at the end of the day, what what we're providing them and that they thankfully just want to keep coming back. But that's the challenge is to make sure that you're continuing to provide that for them. And and not getting stale and staying dynamic. I mean, even right now, we're 
changing up how we're going to shoot our studio images. And because I just think also people have been seeing so many images now over the years through Instagram and all these things. And it's just there, it's falling flat on them now. So how can we provide content, create content that is more dynamic in the way they see it in studio images? How can we um, still make them feel nostalgic and, and, and have that kind of authentic connection with the brand. It might not be through just seeing a picture of a bonfire anymore. It's let's take a quick little video (laughs) of it and they hear the crackle and they just, for that moment, they feel like we're there. Yeah. This summer. And it's not about a full movie around them being at a bonfire. It's just making them feel that moment. You know, I just keep going back to like, we're constantly out there. I'm like, Oh, those moments, like, being in an outdoor shower in the summer and the water, you know, sprinkling on your toes and the feeling of the sun. So trying to capture those little feelings and put that in a video so that it takes them to that special place. And then, you know, hopefully there it's a happy place for them. And then it makes them want to stay there. That's fascinating. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I just want to touch on retail briefly. You have your retail location in DC. I imagine it is a, a vision in person. I haven't, I haven't been to DC in a couple of years. Um, but I'm curious um when you felt that was the mo- the moment to to launch retail and if you planned on um ex- expanding your retail empire. So we launched the store, I think it's six years old now, and it is tiny and it is a gem. And it was when we first launched it, we didn't have half the brands we have now. We didn't have half the verticals. We didn't have our own private um, Tucker Nook lines at all. Oh, wow. It's a very efficient, very profitable store. And we had plans to roll out a lot more and then COVID hit. And there was this feeling of let's slow things down are we going to stay alive? Are we going to go bankrupt? We um, we were really worried the fulfillment centers would shut down. And um, it turned out all of a sudden we had a bit of that liar's poker mentality where we kind of had a contrarian view after we really kind of watched the world for a little bit from a retail perspective. And there were a lot of retailers like Saks Fifth Avenue and J. Crew and all these that were declaring bankruptcy. And there was so much disruption in the market. And there were a lot of customers trying to figure out you know, where they should be shopping online and how they should be shopping online and whether they could trust their, you know, those old retailers as much. And I think we realized our DNA was online shopping and providing them with a great um, experience online. And once we realized we'd be able to fulfill from an operations perspective, we kind of took that contrarian model and we really leaned into it. Um, and we said there is an opportunity right now for us to really try to to grow um, and let all these customers out there know that we can be a great destination for them to provide them, you know, with great product and confidence and make them feel stylish and um, that they didn't need to be worried about where they could shop um, in the future. And so we really leaned into that. Um, and and I think. As a result, we shut down our store during that time, obviously, and we were growing so quickly online and have been, and the store has been such a small percent of that revenue that we have just reopened it, but it's still, it's such, brick and mortar is a tiny part of our business. We are so focused on um, online, but we are the customer and, you know, omni-channel is big and I want to shop in person. You know, I want to run down the street and grab something I need, or I want to try things on and, and be back in a store with, 
you know, someone that I can ask questions. And so um, we've, we're now rolling out more stores and looking at larger ones. Um, and so that's something in the next couple of years that you'll see a lot more of, but it's, it's been this big shift of, um, you know, what do we look like in 3d? I think so many brands, they launch physically in the real world. And so they know how that feels, but when you're launching online and we have so much of this inspirational world that we're trying to provide the customer online, how can you provide that for them in just an in-store shopping experience? An in-store, and I think, an in-store shower yeah. and fire pit. Yeah, exactly. How can they feel that when they walk in? And this is the constant thing that stops me from, you know, leaning into rolling out all these stores. We go and we identify them and I'm like, but how are they going to feel that connection? How are they going to feel that special feeling? Like, you know, they used to, when they would go to Macy's and, you know, generations ago and, you know, have it be this multi-generational emotional experience with, you know, we always go back to when we were kids, we loved those stores where they would have the the soda fountains at the front. We'd go with our dad, we'd order our grilled cheese and you could shop at the same time. But it's, I think that's, I think what always holds us back is we've been so focused on being inspirational and, um, and having this connection online and how can we do that in a way that feels authentic offline and not just like come in and buy some product type of feel. <laughs> yeah, no, I bet that's really challenging to figure out. Although I think if anyone, anyone can figure it out, it's probably you guys. Um, so, so I have faith in that. Although I feel like if there were a retail location in a Nantucket or even Naples where I live or a Palm beach, I feel like it would just do so, so well. No, people um, are begging for it. It will come. It I bet come. they're begging for it for yeah. sure. <laughs> Um, let's pivot quickly just to, um, some personal questions. You are a mother of five children. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, so I, and I, I hear other, um, women who I really admire, like kind of hate to be asked this question. So if you hate it, I'm sorry, but I'm just really genuinely curious how you have managed to stay ahead on top of everything, your personal life, your professional life. What does a day in your life look like? Like, how do you time block your schedule and how are you able to do everything? Cause it seems like an almost impossible. I love how you said, how can you stay on top of it all? And I don't like, I think that's the key to it. I, it is one giant shit show behind the scenes and growing up. I've, I've always been on, I I played competitive sports all through college, huge team player. Um, And the whole, all of Tucker Knock is built on the most incredible, scrappy, creative, smart, um, badass team. And it's the same in my personal life. I mean, my husband is a phenomenal partner and I have an awesome nanny and my friends are all phenomenal at helping, you know, pitch in whenever they can um, to take kids home and things like that. But I, I love the chaos. I thrive in the chaos. I think that's why I do well in kind of that entrepreneurial world as well. And I just, I love the love. I think it's the details and the logistics that get messed up often, but um, you know, our, our philosophy with Tucker Knock is always find the fun. And I think you can wake up every day and you can have this intention. I mean, I live in New York City. Um, I live downtown with five kids. My kids all go to school uptown. There's so much traffic you deal with every day and you can go into it and just be annoyed and cranky about it. And Or you can have that philosophy of like, let's blast some music and dance it out and find the fun in it. And I think that's always been um, so key. It's, it's making sure that you step back and you find the fun in your journey um, and we try to always emphasize that in our work world too. It's if something feels too serious, we're not curing cancer, we're not doing anything that is going to, you know, save people's lives. Hopefully, we're bringing them some joy. But 
you know, step back and let's have fun. Don't take it too seriously. Open up a beer, you know, pretend like we're, we're having fun with friends. We're, we're bringing joy out there. And I think that's in, in my work, in my home life, it's the same. It's, you know, we listen to a lot of music. We dance a lot. It's not pretty behind the scenes. And, um, but you know, it's, it's what we love and, and that's what we surround ourselves with. I love that. I love that. Yeah, your, I don't your house have, sounds I like don't a fun place. Hack. I don't have a good hack. I mean, the little hacks are things like, um, I just told my team, I was like, we need to have Saturday shipping for overnight delivery because I'm always doing things last minute with orders. You know, it's like you learn how to apply um, your last minute chaos to the customer experience too online to solve your needs. But, and mm-hmm. one of them is stores. So that's why we're going to have stores. I'm like, I need stores. I need something down the road to walk I bet into. you're going to have incredible stores. Um, overall, what's been the most rewarding part of the journey? And is there anything you would go back and do differently in hindsight? I think the most rewarding is just building this brand that people really, you know, feel inspired by and that brings them confidence with my best friends, you know, and my family. I mean, it, you know, early on, we tried to go out and raise money. Um, and at the time, there were a lot of retailers that were not as successful, like One King's Lane and some of those brands, Nasty Gal, I think. And as a result, we kind of got pigeonholed as, oh, retail is not a good market right now to be investing in. And we can, and we had, I mean, I can do lots of other stories about trying to raise money with venture back then. But I know I, I could probably talk that. to you for an hour. <laughs> I don't want to take up your whole day though, but. <laughs> There's stereotypes, but, um, but in general, I think it was disappointing, but it forced us to be scrappy and to, um, and it forced us to really come together and bond and have the same vision and, and to be able to control our own destiny. And I think that's one of those things. It's like one of my favorite Garth Brooks songs, Unanswered Prayers. You know, you look back and you wanted that so badly and you were disappointed when you couldn't achieve it. And now it's the greatest blessing that could have happened, which is that, um, you know, it, it is why we are such a strong business. It's why we're profitable. It's why we can control our own destiny and be the best that we can for our customer. So I think that is something and, and to have been able to achieve all that with the people that you love. I mean, my sister and September and our chief creative officer. And I mean, they're all, all our best friends where we have, we all Incredible. married each other's, um, you know, siblings. As oh, well. wow. <laughs> Wow, you guys are really intertwined. (laughs) That now that is the ultimate success story. I don't think I've ever heard uh most people I don't think have the best outcome with that. That is incredible. Knock on wood, it's still working. Um but you know those stories. I always remember in COVID, this woman wrote us this letter and it was like, I lost my job um in COVID. I was so depressed, I had no confidence. And um, I just wanted to thank you because I purchased this dress for my first day on my new job and I got so many compliments and I have never felt more confident in my entire life. And it really did give me, you know, that confidence to get back out there and to, to do what I needed to do. And I think that's, those are the things that we hear every day that are so fulfilling for us. It's just being able to provide something that makes these women and men feel confident and be able to just live a more fun-filled and and better life. I love that. Okay. So for my real final question, uh, what's next for you and Tucker Nuck? Oh, okay. So we have a few things. What do we have? 
Well, we're working on some really fun collaborations that are coming down the pike. One um, is with someone that will be launching in May, and she was one of our big inspirations early on um, in when we first started and was one of kind of the original OGs of kind of that influencer world. So we're excited to be working with her um, and that will all be launching pretty soon. And she is an amazing designer and it's going to be a collection that is so cool and such high quality um, and really different and unique to her. So we're excited about that. We're excited about stores rolling out. And I think, you know, just continuing to, we have some really cool new brands that are coming on for fall. And, you know, I'm really excited about some of the trends that we're seeing too. We're really seeing this desire. The customer wants to feel polished again, and she's going back to work and she's looking for desk to drink looks and power dresses. And, um, you know, those are all things that I think are are really exciting um, out there as this kind of new energy um, that's, you know, where people are just going back to work and feeling really empowered again. So I love that. Well, we'll be sure to be on the lookout for that. For anyone listening who wants to find out more information on yourself and Tucker Nuck, where can I direct them? To tuckernuck.com. And and your Instagram handle. If- oh, we have my Instagram handle. Um, <laughs> Instagram and you can, uh, Jomo Ga is mine and it is not very active and there are a lot of children on it. So <laughs> well, thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. This was fun. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. Be sure to leave a review and subscribe to all future episodes. For show notes and resources mentioned, go to glamandgrow.co. This show is produced by Wavebreak. If you're an e-commerce marketing leader who wants to take your email and CRM program to the next level, schedule a call with me today at wavebreak.co. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is brought to you by Wavebreak. Most brands don't email right and it costs them. With ad costs getting more and more expensive, a world-class email and SMS program is essential. This is why Wavebreak exists. We're the premier email and SMS marketing agency that helps brands take their retention programs to the next level. If you want to learn more about partnering with us and how we can help, schedule a call with me today at wavebreak.co slash call.